At today's 11th hour, we're happy to have Juliet Patterson with us to begin a conversation concerning description and poetry and how we might set ourselves the task of replicating a scene or environment or imagined place merely through language. She'll discuss the subtleties of describing via indication or documentation or explanation or gesture and how a writer can harness this power to complicate their work through precise exacting attention. Juliet Patterson is the author of The Truant Lover, winner of the Night Boat Poetry Prize, and Dirge, a chapbook recently published by Albion. Her poems and essays have appeared in such places as American Letters and Commentary, Crazy Horse, Indiana Review, Rain Taxi, and Verse. Her recent awards include the 2011 Arts and Letters Susan Adafat Prize in Nonfiction, 2010 Linda Hull Memorial Poetry Prize, and a fellowship from the Minneapolis-based Institute for Community and Cultural Development. Please join me in welcoming Julia Patterson. Okay, let's go with this. Good morning. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. So um, if you've been to the 11s this week, we, you've noticed there's been a style of sort of a combination lecture talk, and I'm going to follow suit. Um, this is a little bit participatory, and it's going to be a little bit like a Dharma talk slash lecture. Um, so to start out, I'm just curious who's in the room. How many of you are actually poets, practicing poets? Okay. And how many of you uh, actually read poetry? All right. <laughs> Great. Um, one of the reasons I wanted to talk about description in particular today is that I've noticed, and this is anecdotal, over the last five years that my students, both graduate and undergraduate students, seem to resist or push back when I encourage them to try describing more. <laughs> and I've been really curious about that. Um, so I've been doing some reading and thinking about this topic. My title of the talk is stolen from an excellent book by Mark Doty called The Art of Description. It's part of a series of books that Grey Wolf Press publishes on the craft of writing. I highly recommend the series in general, but also the book by Doty, just for your reference. A couple of the poems um, that we're looking at today are sort of lifted from his book, and I'm expounding in different ways about them, but just so you know, that's where some of the material is coming from. But before we dig in, I want to start with a little bit of brain science um, and talk about two things. One is a 19, roughly 1989 study done in Scotland on English readers. So this is only relative to English native speakers. Um, they brought people into a room and had them read both prose and poetry. They identified whether these people before this, whether they were sort of right-dominant hemisphere or left-dominant hemisphere. And then they did brain mapping as these people read. And what they discovered, whether or not you were right or left-dominated, that when you read poetry, both sides of the hemisphere, both parts of the brain were lit up with activity. In those who were more um, right-dominant or who had more experience reading poetry or writing poetry, there was an actual bridge created between both hemispheres, which is what happens when you use certain illicit drugs. Um, why is that important? 
scientists, neuroscientists, psychologists, um, philosophers even think that in order to be whole and sort of experience life so fullest, we have to be using the capacity of both hemispheres. And when we make that connection, there can be a sense of euphoria or, or, or deep emotion or deep presence or awakening. This is where the Dharma talk comes in. <laughs> so it's interesting that no matter who you are, when you read poetry, both sides of your hemisphere are sort of being ignited. A more recent study, and if you Google your brain on poetry, you'll find details about this study done in Exeter, went a little bit further and discovered that regions of the brain associated with memory were more stimulated, um, more strongly than reading areas when reading poetry. In other words, there were associations going on. Not just language. Associations. And it suggests that reading uh, poetry is like recollecting. Now, we all know when we're remembering something and recollecting, what's involved right away? The psyche, perception, awareness, right? It's associative. It's not logical, okay? And then when the team um, in this particular study compared poetry to prose, they found evidence that poetry activates brain regions associated with introspection, such as the um, posterior cingulate cortex and the medial temporal lobes. So in addition to memory or recollection, there's also introspection, or deeper emotion is being set off simply by the act of reading this language. Why do you suppose that is? Why poetry and not prose? No guesses? Prose is more literal. So you would be involved in implications and projections and associations and all those kinds of subjective connections. Yeah. Sometimes you'd have to work a little. To make yes. sense out of the poetry? Yes. Right. Another point is that the purpose of poetry is to be memorable because it evolved when we couldn't read or write. Yes. And we had to use rhymes and alliteration and other devices to make it memorable. Yes. So rhymes and alliteration are used. Poetry needs to be made memorable. Prose is a little more, uh, what was the word you used? literal, um, and we have to work harder when we read poetry. There's some research that indicates that music causes similar reactions in That is correct. You're, you're cutting to the chase. Do you want to come up here? <laughs> yes. What most often happens with poetry is that we're attracted to sound that's created by the alliteration. That's correct. But even in the Scottish study, people were shown poetry that we might think is more postmodern or very modern and doesn't necessarily have the overt veneer of that sort of sonic um, muscular Your tension. Yes. 
It's very subtle. And you're correct that the only other thing that ignites both sides of your brain like that is music. And it's important to know, I think, that all known cultures in the world share two things, poetry and music. So we sort of know this primarily. Um, so some of the theories, in addition to what you've said about why poetry ignites this state, this state in us, is that, of course, lineation is part of it. Our brains, the, the left side of the brain, which wants to organize language and compartmentalize things and make sense of things, is trying to organize the grammar. And a line break obviously interrupts grammar. And we're waiting for the closure of the, the language itself, the, the actual sentence, if it is a sentence. Or we're trying to track the fundament of the, the language, if that makes sense. We're trying to understand what the subject is. And if we lose track of that, our brains are working harder. Or they're doing something different because they're not able to absorb the language in the way that we're used to. The other that a person named Ian McGilchrist talks about is that um, that the brain, the, the right side of the brain, is thinks and operates very metaphorically. So one of the reasons we respond this way to poetry is that poetry, by large part, operates out of image or metaphor. Okay, he's written a book called *The Master and His Emissary*. The Divided Brain and the Making of the Western World. Um, the best description of this book really comes from him, McGill Christ. And he argues um, that the book argues that the division of the brain into two hemispheres is essential to human existence, making possible incompatible versions of the world with quite different priorities and values. The right brain, he goes on to say, is responsible for our ability to see things in their totality to make metaphorical connections, to fuse ideas and disciplines, science and poetry, for example. And the left brain, by contrast, enables us to arrange and organize given information. It sorts, it counts, it manipulates, and it controls. The title of his book implies a clear hierarchy, but he's quick to point out that both sides of the brain operating in tandem again, are necessary for living a full human existence. And however, over the, fast, the past 500 years or so in our culture, the left brain is sort of gaining control over the right brain, and which he argues for our happiness and perhaps for our very survival um, must be the master. Um, he goes on to say that poetry is really a recruitment of the right hemisphere. That's his quote. A function largely of image and metaphor. So it's another reason or perhaps defense <laughs> around description. I'm very interested in this mechanism of description because what we're really talking about here is how do we bring the sensual world, the outside world, to a reader through the device of language, which is abstract, but perhaps more importantly, how do we ignite a whole side of ourselves, that right side of the brain, in order to be more full? The right hemisphere, again, is better at understanding metaphor in the strictest sense, but also at making unusual connections. So therefore, it, it accepts non-literal use of language. The left brain is the one that wants everything to be literal. It wants to have meaning. It wants to have order. 
And he also says that the right hemisphere holds knowledge, what he calls knowledge, the stuff of life, while the left holds the information. And he argues that we're at a point in our culture where we're in danger of losing our knowledge. We're so obsessed with information that we're starting to lose track of our knowledge. And he quotes and talks a lot about poetry in this book. It's very curious. He's not a poet. In defense of that poetry (laughs) holds the knowledge. Of course, perhaps we could say all literature holds knowledge, and that's partly why we're here. So that's my brief brain introduction. (laughs) We're here in part to think about what do we do when we describe something Do we reproduce? Do we account? Do we portray, trace, parcel out? What is the point of description? And how do we take the measure of the external world? And what can it mean for our writing? Okay. So now comes the participatory part. Um, Before I talk too much, and uh, I should have started with a caveat, which was the description reads that we'll look at some contemporary poets and We certainly will, but we're dipping back right now to the Romantic period and looking at a little Keats. Um, And I'll just quickly read the first stanza uh, in the interest of time, just to give you a flavor of the poem. And then I'm going to ask you to do something with this piece. Oh, dog. Seasons of mists and mellow fruitfulness, close bosom friend of the maturing sun, Conspiring with him how to load and bless with fruit the vines that round the thatched eaves run, to bend with apples the mossed cottage trees, and fill all fruit with ripeness to the core, to swell the gourd and plump the hazel shells with a sweet kernel to set budding more, and still more later flowers for the bees until they think warm days will never cease. For summer has overbrimmed their clammy selves. Now, thinking more like a reader and not so much like a writer, um, take a minute to read this poem and just notice what happens to you as a reader. Do you have any associations? Do you have any memories? Is there one particular image which leaps out at you? Is there language that you love? What happens? Can we do that in about two minutes? You can't see the whole phone here. You're losing one line here. Okay, 
Anyone willing to share an experience they had with the poem? No one? Yes. Not having grown up with Arden, and still having lived in the Middle East for many years, so many of these things you know, get into your system. Like um, Some of them I can even relate to my life in India. But for example, stubble plays. Last year when I was in Iowa City in October, I took some pictures of the yeah. corn, all. It was all cut down and it was really like stubble. Mm -hmm. When you look at that picture again, it's like stubble. You suddenly think, oh, stubble. Did everyone hear that? So never having experienced autumn, but having lived in the Midwest for some time, this poem seems to capture sort of the feeling. It evokes the feeling and sort of sensory experience of autumn. And she used the stubbled place as one example. Others, yes? Well, I think that the second um, it goes from kind of describing autumn, if I have this right, to speaking directly to autumn. Mm -hmm. And what happens for you as a reader when that happens? So she's talking about the second stanza where the poem shifts to a direct address to Autumn itself. And for her as a reader, she gets pulled in more deeply. Do you know why you get pulled in more deeply? I guess it's the personification, maybe. And what is. Say more. <clears throat> I'm a person and now Autumn is. Like me. <laughs> I am a person. Now, Autumn is also a person who has characteristics that I can now identify with more easily. And we're being addressed as if we are Autumn. We're, we're being Thy. addressed directly by Keats. Yes. We're, he's bringing us in. Yes. So an intimacy is created through the direct address. I think intimacy starts right away with a close bosom friend. Right. Of the maturing son. And I immediately started smiling just because as soon as I see the word maturing son, I think this is great for a middle aged person. Because it's the whole first stanza lets me know how perfectly lovely it is to be aging. You know, it's all these positive, wonderful, plump, right things. It's such a good feeling. And by the time I get to the last stanza, you know, where I could be regretting, just don't worry about them. I, I, so I feel brought in immediately, and I have a tremendous feeling of comfort through the whole poem. Mm -hmm. Did everyone hear that? I, I don't know if I could paraphrase that. But stanza seems more like Indian summer to me. <laughs> Everything's right, and the sun may be, it's, it's still hot, and things are, uh -huh. things are harvesting, and, yes. and but the sun is, is definitely different than Sarah. Well, and also playing off this idea of it's, like you said, it's nice to read this in middle age and the metaphor of a life being a year or the four seasons. And then in the last stanza, there's sort of this reassurance of where are the songs of spring? In other words, early in your life, I, where are they? Think not of them, thou hast thy music too. You know, so it's okay. <laughs> yeah. All implied, by the way through descriptive language and imagery. He doesn't tell us any of what you're extrapolating from the image. Right. Aha. Okay, good. So this is from the Romantic period. Um, just to say 
like two tiny things about that period. <laughs> For those of you who might not know, you know, they, they romantic poets pretty much define poetry as the spontaneous overflow of personal feelings. I mean, the whole idea was to sort of be emotive and very um, sensory oriented. And, but they were also aware that there's a mind at work. And so it was the filtering of emotion through the mind that both things work together in order to create art. But, so it's not as if they didn't think about craft. And you can see there's a high meter and rhyme here. Um, but it really is thinking about image or description as a mode to transcend or trans go beyond what's real, but also express these very deep and powerful feelings. Okay. Um, all right, so now we're going to switch to a, another visual. Um, so part of what was happening when you were sort of responding to that Keats poem is, is just what should be happening when an image really works, when descriptive language really works. And this is the power of description. Okay, this line is from uh, Wallace Stevens. It says Ezra Pound. Um, Ezra Pound, that's another oh. bullet point. <laughs> So Wallace Stevens, grapes that in autumn make their sharp air sharper by their smell. It's one single line, but in my mind this embodies what a complex and wonderful image can do. Um, And just to unpack this a little bit, right away you might imagine the air, you might imagine the grape. This sort of implies scent or fragrance. The scent of the air certainly is invoked, but so is the scent of the fruit and by default, yes. The overtones of the image, so again, sort of riffing off on Sarah and what you were suggesting, you know, the autumn of life, you might say, or whatever awaits us, that you can card one sense of sharpness from another, that there are degrees of sharpness. That's deep perception, isn't it? That's pretty deep awareness. To know that the air can be sharp, but sharper still. Uh, I would argue this also gives us a visual experience, at least for me. Grapes that in the autumn, right away I see them. And I see autumn, and I have my own picture of what that looks like. And then the overtones of the grape itself, which might invoke for some people ritual, harvest, hedonistic behavior, um, pleasure, I don't know. I mean, it's, you, you can associate with a lot of things in this one singular line. And I use this only as an example of how images can proceed in a poem, that they can unpack and unfold in, in readers in ways that we can't predict. But really good image makers, really good descriptive writers know this, and they know that they can pack an image in a way to hopefully make a lot of things bubble up and perk up, yes? So a poem is really something made out of words, yes? But I'm going to argue that it proceeds by means that are different than prose. Um, Its uses of illogic 
or the kinds of light, logic you might encounter in dream states are more common in poetry. Its imagistic clusters are, if not more common, perhaps more important in terms of carrying the action or drama or emotion forward. Not to say you don't use those devices in prose, but obviously there are other things which carry narrative forward. And a poem is asking you not just to glean the information from an image, but also to experience the image through the senses. So you were already having that experience with the Keats poem. You were having a a bodily sensory experience. That's what the hope of an image or a descriptive piece of language is, isn't it? So Ezra Pound, because at least in poetry, description really does operate around an image. Ezra Pound's famous definition of an image was an intellectual and emotional complex in an instant of time, which is another way of describing what I've just perhaps articulated. So the more accurate and sensory the evocation of things are in our work, the more we have the sense that someone there is doing the looking. A sensibility is at play here. So for those of you who eschew description in favor of realism, I'm going to challenge you and say that actually, you know, descriptive acts can be a way to embody your actual presence as a narrator or speaker or as a human being in the world. We might say the art of description is the art of perception. That's sort of what I've been saying. And to better look at description, we have to have more awareness. And we have to work at being more attentive as writers. And why is it keep doing that? <laughs> because I want you to be more attentive. There we go. All right. So, um, I should have also said as a caveat, this is just a smattering of poems, obviously, that we're looking at, um, but you really can't, um, you can't talk about description and not talk about Elizabeth Bishop. She's one of the masters of descriptive, imagistic language. And this is a, a fairly famous poem, very famous poem, um, called The Fish. We have a recording of it, so I'll play that. Um, I can't play that and show the dot cam all at once, so I think I'll just play it and then I'll throw the poem up on the screen. Um, For those of you who know the poem, this is a kind of a humorous quote about the genesis of the poem. Um, Bishop said, that's exactly how it happened. I did catch it, just as the poem says, and that was in 1938. Oh, I did change one thing. The poem says he had five hooks and actually he had three. You're about to hear the poem. This is a roughly um, 75 line poem. It's very long. It's very descriptive. (laughs) And we'll talk about it after we listen to it. This takes a moment to queue up, so I apologize for that. Um, You were speckled with that. See, I'm trying to be so technologically savvy, and it's just getting me, isn't it? Too much information, not enough knowledge. Oh, 
Sorry for this. I caught a tremendous fish and held him beside the boat half out of water with my hook fast in the corner of his mouth. He didn't fight, he hadn't fought at all. He hung a groaning weight, battered and venerable and homely. Here and there, his brown skin hung in strips like ancient wallpaper, and his pattern of darker brown was like wallpaper. Shapes like full-blown roses, stained and lost through age. He was speckled with barnacles, fine rosettes of lime, and infested with tiny white sea lice, and underneath two or three rags of green weed hung down. While his gills were breathing in the terrible oxygen, frightening gills, fresh and crisp with blood that can cut so badly, I thought of the coarse white flesh packed in like feathers, the big bones and the little bones, the dramatic reds and blacks of his shiny entrails, and the pink swim bladders like a big peony. I looked into his eyes, which were far larger than mine, but shallower and yellow. The irises back and packed with tarnished tin foil, seen through lenses of old scratched eyes and glass. They shifted a little, not to return downstairs. It was more like the tipping of an object toward the light. I admired his sullen face, the mechanism of his jaw. And then I saw that from his lower lip, if you could call it a lip, grim, wet, and weapon-like, from five old pieces of fish line, or four, and the wire leader with the swivel still attached, with all their five big hooks grown firmly in his mouth. A green line frayed at the end where he broke it, two heavier lines, and a fine black thread still crimped from the strain and snap when it broke and he got away. Like metals with their ribbons frayed and wavering, five-haired beard of wisdom trailing from his aching jaw. I stared and stared, and victory filled up the little rented boat from the pool of bills where oil had spread a rainbow around the rust engine to the baler rusted orange, the sun-cracked thwarts, the oil on their strings, the gunnels, until everything was rainbow, rainbow, rainbow. And I let the fish go. So remember, the only thing Bishop changed was the number of hooks. She said there were three hooks, not five. Um, so a couple of things about this poem. Um, there's a narrative here. The basic narrative is I caught a tremendous fish and I let it go. There's about seven lines of narrative, six of which appear in the first part of the poem. They kind of set the scene. I caught a tremendous fish and held him beside the boat, half out of water with my hook fast in the corner of his mouth. But if the story were the sole intent of the poem, it could have been a lot shorter. Right? Instead of getting to her point, I caught this fish, he had these hooks, <laughs> he's a survivor, 
I let him go. I'm paraphrasing poorly. Forgive me, Elizabeth. Instead of getting to the point, she's more concerned with the experience of observing that her aim is to track the pathways of scrutiny. And you can see that at first she notes the weight and the sound, fusing impressions with a startling phrase like the, the grunting weight. And then you can see how she uses a lot of concrete description, but also a little bit of metaphor or simile. Comes in with a, a simile around the peeling scales. The fish surface becomes ruined wallpaper. And now the poem's structural scaffolding is more or less established, that this is a shuttling of attention from outward detail to inward association, that ruined wallpaper exists somewhere in this speaker's imagination, memory, or literal world. The eye then moves over the fish, and it lingers on the gill, and let me just start sort of halfway down the foam there. While his gills were breathing in the terrible oxygen, the frightening gills, fresh and crisp with blood that can cut so badly, I thought of the coarse white flesh packed in like feathers, the big bones and the little bones, the dramatic reds and blacks of his shiny entrails, and the pink swim bladder like a peony. So in a sense, for me anyway, we move from a fish to a human body, back to a fish, and then we sort of enter into what literally is the fish's inner life, like the guts and the bones and the core of what this creature is. Yes? And we end with a simile about a peony, which for me always comes as a surprise in this poem. And for whatever reason, doesn't carry um, you know, literary artifice so much as it transports me to a garden. I'm curious to know what happens for any of you, if you have a different response or anything to add to that sort of... Sir? The other thing is that it's is surprising to me, too, because it's a thing of beauty. And she's been describing entrails and blood <laughs> and... Uh, you know, swim bladder. I mean, even even the sound of the word bladder to me is not something of beauty. Uh, yes. And so, it's a great. is not what you expect the comparison to be. That's a, that yes. It's a great observation. And from there, where does she go next? We have to turn the page. <laughs> The eyes. They shifted a little, but not to return my stare. It was like the tipping of an object toward the light. I admired his sullen face, the mechanism of his jaw, and then I saw that from his lower lip, if you could call it a lip, grim, wet, and weapon-like, hung five old pieces of fish line. Highly descriptive, following the eyes off of, you know, go, first we went inside the fish, now we're back out and we're looking at the eyes and 
in some sense, I think that helps us understand that the speaker is also seeing very deeply, yes, if that isn't already obvious. Um, But I think another really interesting thing that's achieved in this poem, merely through description, is a temporality, a kind of what we might call lyric time. This is a more lyric than narrative poem, and by that I mean that it's not concerned with the past or even what's coming in the future. All that matters is this moment, in some sense, with the fish, although there are traces of past and future in here in terms of the speaker's life. And you might think about this as it represents slipping out of the story. We're almost out of time. This is, even though a fairly conventional poem in terms of its grammar and the way it proceeds, in terms of time or temporality, it's very nonlinear. It's of the moment, yes? So remember, seven lines of narrative. Six lines occur in the beginning. 69 lines of this poem are inside the story. By that I mean we are enacting the story here, not telling the story. That's where that horrible, oft-repeated adage comes from, show, don't tell. And I'm in the agreement uh, that Kelly Dwyer said yesterday, we need to both show and tell. But look at the power of what showing does in terms of creating consciousness, in terms of articulating perception. And there's a speaker here, and it's very clear. She's not telling us too much about herself directly. We know it through how she perceives the world and how she encounters the world. Now, again, Bishop is more or less one of the masters. If you want to study concrete, literal description, she is your person to read and study. And you do see she does use metaphor, but she leans much heavier on the concrete details, so more literal descriptor than a figurative descriptor. So let's take a look at another poem um, that leans a little more on metaphor or figurative language. This is a poem called Facing It by Yusuf Kumanyaka. And uh, I'm going to rely on you again to sort of be the extrapolators or um, recorders of your experience regarding this poem. So I'm going to read it out loud. And again, just pay attention to what catches your eye, what moves you, what takes you out of the poem in a positive way into another memory or association. It's called Facing It. My black face fades hiding inside the black granite. I said I wouldn't, damn it. No tears. I'm stone. I'm flesh. My clouded reflection eyes me like a bird of prey, the profile of night slanted against morning. I turn this way. The stone lets me go. I turn that way. I'm inside the Vietnam Veterans Memorial again, depending on the light to make a difference. I go down the 58,022 names, half expecting to find my own in letters like smoke. I touch the name Andrew Johnson. I see the booby trap's white flash. Names shimmer on a woman's blouse, but when she walks away, the names stay on the wall. Brush strokes flash, a red bird's wings cutting across my stare. The sky, 
a plane in the sky. A white vet's image floats closer to me than his pale eyes look through mine. I'm a window. He's lost his right arm inside the stone. In the black mirror, a woman's trying to erase names. No, she's brushing a boy's hair. So what strikes you? What's capturing your attention? Yeah. Well, I did think that last line was very evocative because, you know, we're looking at adults and soldiers and that kind of thing, and then we're suddenly brought to the realization these were once little boys that who would know this was their destiny. Did everyone hear that? Last line is evocative because we're thinking of adults, but in those last moments we're aware that it's a boy that's actually... Is that what you said? Yeah, that all those mm-hmm. men that were on the memorial were once little boys, uh-huh. but no one knew that would be their destiny uh-huh. to be on that memorial. I read that last line is she's brushing the boy's hair because he's meeting his father. Mm-hmm. Yes. What strikes me is how inside and outside the perspective is of the poet and our eyes following the poet's eyes mm-hmm. and what it's like if you've ever been to the Vietnam Memorial, where the names and my face are there at the same time. And what strikes me is how the poet sets it up in the first two lines and then expands on in the rest of the poem. Mm-hmm. He's inside, literally, in a sense, or figuratively, right? My black face fades, hiding inside the black granite. Which is figurative and literal. Right? Jim? I was struck by how so many of the images are reflections. Yes. And the the memorial itself is acting as a mirror, really, of, of all of us, of our country, of our society, of individual people. But, you know, of that moment in history. Yeah. And that, that's, that just struck me, that mirror image. It's interesting a monument that is a memorial typically there of things or people, animals, flags, horses, whatever. This is just a big rock, a a big hunk of stone with letters scratched in it. So really, the memorial itself is really about memory, it's not about the object of the, the monument. And it doesn't really exist unless you are looking at that and you're bringing your Right. Which is not unlike what the news was like during that time. You know, it was all this abstract other thing. Mm-hmm. But it, it rips you into a personal contact with it, even though it's just a piece of stone with letters on it. Mm-hmm. 
And we have traces of the story here, more than we had in the bishop piece. Is that correct? But we also have a lot of descriptive language. In fact, the story is mostly told through description and leans heavier on a figurative description than a literal one. The birds of prey, um, the I am a window, the stone lets me go. The stone can't literally let you go, we know that. The birds of prey are important. He keeps returning to sort of that core image. You notice the color. He's using black and white, which evokes, of course, struggles around race. Um, that's operating metaphorically in this poem. Yes? The title, too, of the title. I love the... Facing, facing it. Facing it. That's both a literal and... A both a literal and a metaphoric meaning. He also evokes a sense of touch. I touched the name Andrew Johnson that's what people do there. They go there and they, they touch the letters, they do rubbings of the letters, so it's not just the visual, it's, it's, it's evoking mm-hmm. the sense of touch, which is yeah. very, very common. Mm-hmm. So it's sensory, it's, it's anchored in sensory, but it, but it leans, again, more toward the figurative <coughs> procedure. How about way in the back, if you haven't heard from you. Um, I, I feel as though uh, this man that fits, this woman that fits, So you feel that from the, the speaker. Yes. Is that moving forward, I think, also includes what it's like to have flashbacks, where you see what's real when you also see what was and you have a difficult time distinguishing them from each other. And I think that comes through, particularly in the juxtaposition of certain lines and his use of... <coughs> Senses, I touch the name, then I see the booby traps white flash. Then he talks about names shimmering, then she walks away. So there's the closeness, the mixing up with the perceptions, then the separation. So there's also that part of it. Uh huh. So I wanted to talk about that poem in part because it does lean more on figurative language and in addition to students being, my students at least, being resistant to descriptive language, they're a little resistant to metaphor. And metaphor, if I may be so bold, is might, might be a little out of fashion in today's contemporary poetic world. And I, myself as a writer, really struggle with, you know, where do I want to land on that continuum? I'm fascinated by language that really doesn't operate out of this kind of classic figurative world. And yet I'm constantly you know, drawn to reading it. So it's a, it's a paradox within myself. But just a couple of things that you know, are important about figurative language. And this is different than just that concrete, pure description that Bishop uses in combination with figurative. So he's leaning much more on symbolism, on figurative language here. And really, the, the project of, of a metaphor or simile is to describe, but it is through a comparison. And if you remember your brain lesson that you got at the beginning of this talk, you'll know that you know we think inherently, part of us does at least, in metaphors. So it's familiar to us. It's familiar to us. So then one of the challenges for us as writers is, well, how do you make it new? If you know these comparisons are so familiar to us, how do you make it new and how do you make it interesting? 
but that these figures can work together to make a network of sense or to build actually a story or attention. And that's what you're kind of talking about, how he goes back between black and white. He, he re- uses recursion of the birds. He comes, so the figurative language is established right in the opening of the poem, and he keeps going back to it, and he keeps going back to it. And that's how he's building the perception of the speaker. That's how he's building the whole mechanism of emotion in a way. And then some people say, and I tend to agree, that metaphor offers a certain sort of distance, and maybe it's useful when we're talking about things that are very painful or difficult. And in this case, Kumanyaka, it took him 15 years past his Vietnam experience to even begin writing about it, and this was one of the first pieces that came out. So maybe metaphor is a tool we use when we want to invoke emotion, but for ourselves, we can't be so close to that sort of the concrete reality of the emotion. I am always too ambitious in my talks, and I've got more poems here than we can talk about, but I do briefly want to look at um, a poem by Lorene Niedeker, just to show you how being a descriptive and or imagistic poet does by no means mean excess, ornamentation, decoration, and or metaphor. Here's a poet that really um, pushes against metaphor and uses what we might call metonymy rather than metaphor as a device to articulate perception. Metonymy, just for those of you who don't know, a simple definition of it is that it's the part taken for the whole um, a bad example might be the White House. When I say the White House, you immediately think of the president. That's a, that's an operation of metonymy. But it really works by association between two concepts rather than a direct comparison. So it's usually working through juxtaposition or how things are placed in a poem. Again, not like figurative language, concrete language. Um, and just to give you a tiny, teeny background on Niedeker, She's from the Midwest. She lived in um, Wisconsin in a small town and was sort of a self-made poet, but was part of a group of people called the Objectivists, and they were interested in actually, again, pushing against metaphor. Um, They were interested in using an objective stance, the writer, as a witness or a perceiver that's rather objective and will record perception in its purest, hopefully, or truest form. In other words, they were really trying to capture what is it like to actually perceive? What, did it, what does it mean when we stand out in a field and we actually observe something? What happens to us? And how can we recreate that in language? And in their minds, at least, and I'm generalizing perhaps, but you know, the metaphor becomes an artifice because it's created out of a literary imagination. Here, we're really just trying to record in a bald-faced kind of way as simple as we can. So there's kind of an emphasis on the objects in the poem, the actual grounding material of the poem, which usually means nouns, um, and that the objects themselves add up to the overall feelings and images of the poem as relying, instead of relying on unrelated images or comparisons or connections. So going back to the peony, you know, we're hooking up the ugly fish with a peony to create the uh, experience. Here, we're just putting objects next to each other in the hope that it does the same thing. She keeps the reader in the moment of this poem 
through the experience of each object or image. And in one way, um, she does it to bring you, the reader, into her own sort of perceptual process. And that's kind of a mouthful. Here we go. I'm trying to switch. My life by water. Here springs first frog or board, out on the cold ground giving. Muskrats gnawing doors, no wild green arts and letters. Rabbits raided my lettuce. One boat, two, pointed toward my shore. Through bird start, wing drip, we drift of the soft and serious water. In addition to what I said um, before reading the poem, one of the things I really admire about her, and you notice in the end, that she's creating these sort of word combinations, the bird start, the wing drip, the weed drift, which is sort of like an imagistic shorthand. They are sort of an image in themselves, aren't they? They're not metaphors, but they you know, run a close second behind, maybe. Um, one other poem in your packet, just to mention, because we're running out of time. It's a poem by Jean Valentine, also a very spare poet. Um, and I would say I wanted to include it because uh, you might read this poem and think it's not very descriptive. But what, again, not unlike Niedeker, what's being described here is uh, interiority, like an inner life. That's what's being articulated. And I would argue that, that that act of representation is a kind of description, is another kind of tr- uh, description. And certainly a lot of very contemporary, younger, and even sort of postmodern poets are thinking about that a lot. How do we describe you know, our consciousness, our state of being as it is now? And so how things are being expressed may not look like these sort of classic examples of description, but um, just to throw it out there, there's a wide continuum of how this can be employed in any kind of writing. Um, but the basic sort of thesis is, you know, that this kind of, this is a powerful tool and that using it can really um, embody first consciousness, but hopefully maybe even in your reader, invoke this sort of sensory and bodily sensation. We've got about five minutes. If anyone has questions, I'd be happy to answer or try. Yes? A little louder? McGillchrist. Yes. It is the master and his emissary, the divided brain and making of the Western world. Yale University Press. It's not as dense as it sounds, it's pretty friendly. And fascinating. No other questions? All right. Thank you so much.